Thanks for downloading this episode of Skin Tings. As with the rest of this series, this episode, I'm joined by one of my favorite new acts coming out of the UK right now. Her name is Catherine Ann Davis, AKA The Anchoress. She's a multi-instrumentalist. She's a, a, an amazing producer and has worked with some incredible people. James Dean Bradfield and Simple Minds being just a couple of them. Here she is. It's Catherine Ann Davis from The Anchoress. I'm delighted to talk to you. How are you? How's it all going? You're in a music room. I can see like a little producer set up there, loads of guitars and wires and cables and keyboards and stuff. Yeah, is that your this, little, is that where you produce from? Yeah, this is where I've kind of been stuck for the last two years, pretty much. This is where everything happens. So yeah, it's it's deceptive, this space though, because it's really long and people always go, oh, it looks really small. And it's like, it's about 20 foot that way. But it's yeah, it's a weird the, kind of... In the roof of the house, essentially. I've got the whole of the top of the house and it goes back. Wow a long long way well you're one of the kind of artists i feel like all of my friends i've talked about this with the other artists i feel like during covid all of my friends we all built studios right because you know i discovered that my engineer who i love this guy called nick sheldon but it's still like you know quite expensive to kind of use any good engineer costs money and when that kind of goes from like a couple of sessions every month to, you know, five days a week that you want to record because you have all this time, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to learn how to do this stuff myself. Was was that the same for you? Did you kind of develop or, or you already had it? I was a bit ahead of the curve on that because with The Art of Losing, I, I kind of made that here, you know, and I built the studio, I say built it, like put it together really while I was touring with Simple Minds back in, probably started like sincerely building it in, a, I guess, like 2016, 2017. Cause I just preferred doing everything myself. I preferred that kind of autonomy. So yeah, I was a bit of, I was in a lucky position that when the pandemic hit and when we went to lockdown, I was all good to go. Like I'd been working like this for a while. I was even writing this down the other day for someone saying, you know, with the art of losing that was made in 2019, I was already doing remote sessions. Like the drums were recorded remotely. So I was super lucky to just already be doing a lot of what we ended up having to do obviously over the last two years. So yeah, it's my little my little cave, my little woman cave, um, where I don't really have to leave the house. I'm a bit like Beth de Bond, you know, we, we're both in the same position that we're sort of like shielding still. And yeah, we chat a lot about, you know, making music from our little caves yeah. at home and just doing our oh, own thing. I, I just interviewed her. I, I love her. I think her music is absolutely amazing. And so we just did a big old thing about her on the show. She's amazing, um, isn't she? We're, we're yeah. good mates because obviously we're kind of going through similar experiences and like not being able to tour um, yeah. and having to postpone and cancel things. So it's been really nice to chat to someone that gets it and is yeah, still exactly. doing their own thing. So yeah, we've kind of bonded a bit over that. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm actually on tour now. We just started, this is the last episode because we're um, uh, we're on tour. It's, you know, it's just a nightmare to try and do, you know, remote recording and remote stuff in different hotels. We're really bad into that. Um, and I have to say, it's one of the things I was going to talk about. It's just such a hellish thing to be on tour. And weirdly, if, if I mean, listeners, if you didn't think the pandemic was bad enough, really for us, the biggest issue has been Brexit. There are so many new laws and so many new things going on because of Brexit, like the fact that we can't keep, you have to accompany your luggage. So you no longer can leave all your stuff on a tour bus and zip off by plane to do another country and then zip find your tour bus somewhere in Europe you have to take all your stuff with us and that has been a nightmare because you know you have so much well, I have a recording studio on tour 
now. <laughs> so, yeah, I can really appreciate how hard it is uh, from that. But then also having to, to try and keep you safe from pandemic. Yeah, so it's hear, really individually affected you, right? I hear people say it's really lonely touring now because obviously you can't do any of the social stuff that you would have done before. You know, you can't see friends in different countries or meet up with people after shows. You're, it's just like quite a lonely bubble. And I think, you know, touring, I did it extensively as I say with Simple Minds I was on tour like five six months a year up until 2018 and it's it was pretty lonely anyway it's, it's a yeah. weird life isn't it I think people that don't do it kind of don't get how how strange it is and how dislocating it, it can be and I just can't imagine what that's like now with the added pressure of like not really being able to go outside your bubble and see people and having it's yeah it, it's really strange I mean you you know like the weirdest thing I had to say was that you know we have fans waiting outside the tour bus and fans waiting outside the venues they want us to sign stuff whatever and I just feel really mean because I'm like no I'm sorry and and they there was one girl last night she just didn't get it she just was like outside the tour bus saying, please sign this, please sign this, please sign this. And I'm like, I'm really sorry, but we cannot, I can't jeopardize the tour yeah, so because hard, of yeah. you, because you've just been in a venue with 200, 300, you know, to 3000 people not wearing masks. And, you know, I can't get, I, I no longer can go off stage, you know, and we have this fan, these big fans blowing all the air away from us so that we're not breathing the same air as the audience. Um, and she just didn't get it and thought I was the meanest person on the planet. Oh. I was like, no, I'm really sorry. I can't, I can't sign this stuff. You know, I can't stand next to you and take photos. I can't hold your pen. I can't hold your CD. I can't do any of that. It's, um, and that's so sad, isn't it? Because like, it's one of the things that I loved about playing live is that connection that you get with the audience and meeting mm. people and having, you know, taking photos and just, it, that's the joy of it, isn't it? Like connecting to people that love your music and you take all yeah. that away and it's, it's such a different experience now. I'm, I don't know. Let's, I'm yeah. just trying to be optimistic for the future, but it feels... It's, it's, I think we're one of the few bands, you know, English bands out there touring and it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty nightmare thing. Cause then you've got like, you know, security people and French boards and, and that, that, that are based on, oh, you're English. We're going to mess with you. Cause you're English and you, you know, you left Europe. And the weirdest, saddest thing for me is getting my passport stamped in Spain. Like, oh, oh I'm, my passport's getting stamped like I'm a foreigner. Um, but anyway, it's, you know, those are the, the lonely things of, of touring. Um, I've got a bunch of questions I was going to ask you. I mean, we've touched on it a little bit. I'm going to ask you a really boring question. It's a question that I kind of hate getting asked, but I realise we have a very strange name. But just tell me a little bit about where the name The Anchoress comes from. So it comes from the idea of being stuck in a single room and making music on your own. So it was a bit of an in-joke when I was making the first album, Confessions of a Romance Novelist. And it took me a long time to make because I was still studying at uni at the time and only doing it in kind of downtime. So I used to get like downtime in this little production room. It was like 10 foot by maybe five foot wide. And I'd be stuck in there like from morning till you know really late at night with this tiny little window in it. And I was thinking about, you know, how am I going to put this music out? Do I want it to come out under my name? And I just felt a bit uncomfortable about that and, and wanted a little bit of distance between myself and, and the music that I was putting out there, like a, a kind of persona or a, some sort of superhero name. And I was just watching the one show of all things, like deeply uncool. And there was this <laughs> documentary about anchoresses, which were sort of like female monks in a way. The idea that is that these women would hold themselves up on the side of a church and live a completely monastic life and they wouldn't be able to leave at all. They'd be bricked in. And I thought, God, that sounds a little bit like how are like, you feeling? Music. So yeah, and it's become quite apt, obviously being stuck indoors the last two years as well. So 
I am the anchoress, quite literally. <laughs> I mean, there's something about kind of like, I feel that, you know, I, I, um, I was looking at your podcast, you know, The Art of Losing, which, of course, um, for our listeners, spent two amazing albums. And it's interesting because you have this podcast called The Art of Losing, and then we have a worldwide pandemic. You know, the podcast is about uh, loss, about grief, and, and about losing people, right? Yeah. Um, did you feel like in some ways that podcast and what you're doing in your became a bit of an anchor for people? You know, there was, we had this one thing we could tether ourselves to uh, during this huge period of like loss and anxiety and people trying to work out that, wow, I've just lost all these people um, that are really close to me and I've lost them all at the same time and I can't do anything about it, you know, because I have to Definitely. legally. Yeah. Do, you, do you think there are, in some ways there was a little bit of a premonition, you know, the anchoress and then the art of losing that you became this this root? Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it's strange, you know how it is with making records, you know, there's a bit of a gap before they come out usually. And I, I'd made this album obviously before the pandemic and then that kind of put paid to the release plans. But in a way it was serendipitous that it ended up coming out at this moment when I think people were a lot more ready sort of confront mortality and death and grief originally the conversations I'd had with the record company um, when I'd finished it had been all sort of quite depressing like we're not really sure people are going to connect with this is quite dark stuff it's quite difficult and then obviously none of us could have foreseen what was going to happen and it it just ended up hitting this nerve when it came out you know it came out the week that Sarah Everard was murdered and um, you know none of us obviously could have foreseen those tragic circumstances and I, I think people were just a lot more ready to talk about these really difficult subjects and it it just really chimed with people um yeah and I think it's been a, a sort of touchstone for a lot of people that have lost people during mm. the pandemic as well and I feel just so lucky in a way that it was put on hold because I can't you know who knows what would have happened timing and everything I mean I always say this timing of music is everything um I, 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 what inspired you to do the podcast in the first place Well, I think the podcast was sort of something that I was doing while I was waiting for the label to decide when the record was coming out, first of all. But it was Mm. also a little bit of a way for me to work through some of the ideas because I was still really uncomfortable with talking about a lot of the more personal stuff that I'd been through. Um, And I think by talking to other people who had been through baby loss, through loss and grief, it kind of helped me to realise, you know, I wasn't yet, of course, I'm not the only one that's been through that, but but to articulate it in a different way. And I think it, I was in a much better position when the album came out to be able to do interviews and talk about these things without massively mm. traumatising myself. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a really helpful way to process all of the experiences that I, it wasn't enough just to do it in song. I wanted to sort of dive a bit deeper into those issues and present those to you know people that might be listening to the album and say you know here's the deeper conversation about what it's like to go through um you know multiple instances of baby loss and 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 have that conversation with my friend Sophie Daniels who had experienced stillbirth with her daughter and and for us to talk about it really openly and for it not to be something that people are scared of asking a question about um and it prepared me as I said really well to talk about the album and I'm, I'm just so grateful to everyone that spoke to me for the podcast because there were a lot of brave conversations. Mm. And it's, I mean, I, I find one of the weirdest thing about being musicians is the situation that we're in here now. You know, we've never met each other. We're complete strangers. I'm in awe of your music. I think your music is just like a, a wonderment of that's in my life, you know. Oh, thank you. Um, but at the same time, we're complete strangers. And, and given that, and already we're having to talk about 
you know, deeply personal things and things have happened to us. And I think that it's always interesting how um, musicians are put into that position, you know, of having to, um, you know, release a, a part of themselves to to complete strangers to the world. Um, and I, you know, I, I, and I can understand that. Well, that's why you call yourself the anchorist, because, you know, it puts a bit of distance, right? I was about to say that. That's essentially like what the the anchorist, the name kind of does for me, it just allows me to have a little bit of boundaries. And, you know, there mm. are things that I hold back. I don't talk about everything that I've been through and everything in my life. I don't talk about my personal life. And, you know, I'm I'm still able to have those boundaries that I choose around the things that I have also chosen on reflection to, to share as well. And I think that's so important as a songwriter that you don't feel that everybody has access to everything about you just because yeah. you happen to write songs. Because you've got to have that bit of self-care for yourself as well, I think. I think I think that's a really important thing to actually talk about because I think that as an artist who writes lyrics, you know, everything is in there in the lyrics if you ever look. You know, all my, my deepest personal things that have ever happened to me are all literally blatantly there in the core of a, of a song or whatever. But then I just kind of feel that's it. I don't need to actually give you any more. I don't have to. You don't earn it by buying a record. You know, you, you know, as an artist, we, we have to have those boundaries because I think it's only now people are really understanding how important mental health is to everybody. And that's including people in front of the camera, people behind the camera, and people who are artists and people who are just, you know, they put them all into the music and then you find that there's this like gluttony for more and more and more and more, you know. Um, so I really respect that you have done that. And I think if people look deep into the music, they, every, everything is there. It is. It's like a kind of, if you've got the keys, you can unlock it all. But I also quite like kind of leaving meanings open because I think, you know, I, one of the things I wanted to do with the record especially was provide a space for other people who had experienced different forms of loss, not, not the same as what I've been through, to have that space to express it and to, to sort of feel like it could be cathartic. And if you, uh, if you specify too much detail, that doesn't allow the listener to, to sort of exist in that space. So I think it's also artistically really helpful to not always give every detail about your life and your experiences too. So other people can see themselves in the songs. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, the social media nowadays, it's just so tricky to have any, I think, personal space if you are kind of From doing privacy, your job yeah. in, a, in, in a public sphere and I fiercely guard that still you know there's people often ask me personal questions and I'm just very firm with that's something I don't talk about yeah yeah and I think that that's a really important thing I mean I'm gonna go a little bit back because I, I know that you're um a multi-instrumentalist which I'm ex extremely jealous of I mean I want to play piano at, at 11 and I was told no, basically. So I'm, I play guitar, but really badly. So, I mean, how did you get into music in the first place? How did you end up playing? So what do you play? You play piano, guitar? Yeah, piano, guitar. Bass. I mean, basically kind of anything with strings or keys on. But, mm. but none of it, I sort of call myself like jack of all trades, master of none, really. But, I, you know, I have a little bit of classical training from, I studied the flute at school. I went to one of those schools where you sort of had like Greek lessons and you'd all mm. share a flute and share spit and all of this disgusting yeah, me, stuff. <laughs> me too. I played classical violin for seven years. Can you believe that? <laughs> Do you know what? I, ca I know so many like rock musicians who kind of came through that route. And then I gave it all up when I was like 14, 15. I picked up a guitar, borrowed my sister's guitar. And I'm completely self-taught from that point onwards, really. 
And it's so strange because I remember reading an interview with you probably when I was about 11 or 12 and you saying <laughs> something about really regretting like not kind of studying the guitar, but that you played well enough to write songs. And even then I was kind of harboring secret desires, I think, to be a musician. And <laughs> there weren't that many women out there doing it and, and thinking, taking that to heart and thinking, OK, I've got to kind of learn my instruments as well as I can or as well enough to write, at least. And that's what's important. And that's still sort of how I think about it. You know, I'm not a virtuoso player. I do a bit of a David Bowie and bring in other people to do that where I need it. Um, but I play well enough to write. And that's... Mm. Yeah, that's that, well, that's, that's, that's kind unique. of all you need, really. I mean, I think you just need a brain for software to work out how to do music software. If you can work out how to do music software, you can literally do anything you want nowadays. I mean, the software is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, production um, was my first love. You know, that's, I think that's what I thought I'd end up doing. I kind of came up through the studio system a little bit and thought very much I'd probably end up just recording other people's music. Doing my own thing was not it just wasn't something I thought I was capable of. It, it was only... did you, what, who, who were those early inspirations? How did you get in? What made you want to be a producer first and foremost? I mean, what, what were you listening to that you thought, oh, it, they produced their stuff, I wouldn't do that? It was really Prince and Bjork. So it was like looking at the credits and going, you know, written and produced by Prince. And I loved that. And then the same with Bjork and Kate Bush and realising that you could kind of author your whole vision. And it was very much all or nothing for me. It's like I either wanted to do everything or mm. I didn't really want to sort of be singing in someone else's band or let anyone else put their hands on the controls basically yeah because that that's really that that you just summed it up you control the equipment you control the software you control the, the recording of the tapes you control what the music sounds like that's what i always say to young girls when i work with them like yeah you know you, you it's all very well standing in there looking pretty and singing but you're always going to be told what to do if you don't know how to use some music software and that's what's been so great about the pandemic as well. I've seen, I've seen this massive explosion of, you know, women who make music learning how to record themselves. And I'm so excited by what that's going to mean. Yeah. Because and they're all going like, you know, all, I'm one of those women, actually. I, I built my studio at the beginning of uh, COVID, you know, because I was just like, oh, you know, this can't be that hard. I've been watching guys do it for 20 years. I mean, I've produced Skunk and Nancy albums and produced my solo stuff I've always co-produced. But I, I produced from a, from a standing at the back of the room. And then I'm like, I'm going to just do this. And the minute I got into it, I was like, this is not so hard. Why do they make this like look so hard? It's really not. Exactly. It? Well, they make it look hard to try and kind of keep hold their space I guess and yeah it's, exactly it's like, I'm so I'm really passionate about it like one of the things I kind of do on the side is is train um women and gender minorities in in big studio spaces because I really think that we'll change the kind of music being created mm. if we get more different people into the room controlling mm. the actual process if that makes sense I, I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. I have this uh, experience I was talking about. It was when I was doing the very first, it was at the BBC studios. And it was um, a thing that we did, they did, where they played three songs and the band that the audience chose, that was a song that was going to be, you know, going to be recorded by the BBC. And they chose Skunk and Nancy. It was Little Baby Swastika. And I remember being in the studio and I, I'm saying to the guy, can you put some more like reverb on that track? on you know the vocal and he was like oh sorry can't do that I was like why not and he just turned around and looked at me like oh it's too difficult to uh, to explain because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to basically and I was just like well explain it 
And so I made him explain it and I made him take 10 minutes out to explain it just to show him like, you ever say that to me again, I'm going to make you explain it in detail so I can learn it so you can never say that to me again. And that was that's always been my approach, you know. But yeah, it's like knowledge is power, isn't it? And I think it's it's just kind of demystifying. And also, like you said, you know, making people realise that you give it a go and actually it's not as tricky as you think it is. Demystifying it, I think. I think now we're in a world of the one thing uh, computers and social media has taught people is how to look at software and how to do things you do it using their phone. And I think that women particularly and people are growing up with much more knowledge of um, how computers work and how software works and all that kind of stuff. Because they're doing, they're doing filters at five now. <laughs> I know, it's scary. But it's also like that democratisation of the process as well. Because, you know, when I was sort of starting out recording, had my multi-track and digital digital multi-track that my parents had, had got me um and without that you know I couldn't have afforded to go into a studio and record demos it, it just wasn't like a, a thing for me and having that you know having that equipment in my in my flat and being able to slowly over years teach myself how to use it and, and to get better and better at it incrementally has ultimately meant that I now can make a record myself that, that goes in the top 40 which is to me, amazing. I look back at it, at how rubbish I was when I started. <laughs> yeah. So listen, there's all that you know. We're, we're examples of like it can be done. You just got to learn how to do it. Um. And 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 what's really lovely about it is that you have created this wonderful soundscape, because you know, as we both know, lyrics and emotion. There's a spirituality towards the music side of it and the, the soundscape. Um. Everything's beautifully recorded, but I love how open the music sounds and how how much space everything has was that a very deliberate thing to connect the emotions and the lyrics and the the sound to echo that in the sound in that way yeah definitely I mean I think a bit of it is obviously probably from like kind of my classical sort of interests as well in terms of having the tracks on the album that are, that are more sort of more neoclassically inspired and the instrumental and soundscapes that then feed into the singles. I guess that's quite unusual these days to do that. Like normally you're front loading because you're thinking about Spotify. Let's put the singles first. It's like I open the album with a strings and piano instrumental. It's like yeah, commercial, su- yeah. commercial suicide. But for me, I think of like the album still, I really like that as an art form. It's a bit like a novel for me. I want to tell a story. And to do that, you need space and you need, um, you know, you need breathing. And I think, again, like in, with the way things are now, with it all being about, you know, hitting the algorithms and hitting like playlists and it's all about three minutes, 30, has got a track, a track's got to be and it's got to have a hook. And, the, and it just doesn't interest me. And I, I guess I'm a little bit old fashioned in that all the stuff that I love is is about creating something that, that tells a story. And, you know, you've got to listen to the whole piece which again doesn't fit with the whole shuffle mechanism on Spotify either, does it? Yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, I think that the, the, the wonderful thing about starting now with, with that track is that what it does, it makes a statement of what this artist is about and it makes a statement about what you're about to go through. And I find, I mean, I play um, a lot of new music on this show. I try to kind of play lots of new music, so I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, and I find that there's a definite swing there's a, there's a change in the mood and you know when you're talking to kids nowadays they want I, I work with in um the Clive Davis Institute in America uh the um New York uh university the music section and one of the things that they say to me is like no no we don't want you know we want people to listen to the old album they're really 
realizing some of those old rock records or indie records, you know, that that was an album that they're listening to. So I think that that statement that you made is really good and promising because that's what the kids are actually looking at now. They're yeah. looking at those old Zeppelin records, whatever, you know, it was a whole album. And then they are, they're trying to be as um, intuitive and experimental and as wandering as those old 70s albums and those old 90s albums used to be. So I think that's, it's a statement that you've, you're making that I think that the kids are, are very much into. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see. It's like really resonated with an older crowd as well. The progressive music world has really embraced it. You know, it was like prog album of the year. And I think, you know, guys in their 40s and 50s sending me messages kind of saying how much they love it because it resonates with the records that they grew up with, the whole worlds that you can kind of dive yeah. into. And obviously I made it even trickier for listening on streaming because the tracks kind of overlap with each other. So you can't even really listen. I think it was yeah I think it was Pink Floyd that Pink Floyd that put all their um their track things in the middle of the song so you literally cannot not you have to listen to the whole album because if you go by skip tracks you're going to end up in the chorus of the second chorus of the middle of the song so I think that might be a way to go as well but um, it's like the the appetite is there though if you look at the way we consume tv and Netflix and we binge watch things like people do want immersive experiences um I think it's just we've been a little bit brainwashed by the powers that be that it's got to be, you know, single well, tracks. I, I, and... I think, you know, I think it's record companies and the accountants, you know, they want their hot singles, you know, they want their Justin Bieber singles and that's great. But I think that there's always got to be alternatives to that. So, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't, I'm glad you're not worrying about that. We, we don't worry about it either in my band. We're just like, yeah, you know, we're going to do an album. We're doing singles at the moment, weirdly enough, for the first time in our career. Because of COVID, we didn't get to an album because we have to do an album all in the middle of the room together you know we have to be together to write yeah. music you know of course way. yeah it's, it's, so, it's so strange isn't it like all the, those ways that you normally create have kind of been taken away from us and you've got to try yeah and, you don't get that same kind of personal connection do you when you're doing it remotely it's, it's just a bit weird <laughs> the industry i love what you were saying about how you um you know you've uh you've you've been played seven hundred fifty thousand times seven hundred fifty thousand streams and made zero money from that yeah nothing isn't that much. just incredible <laughs> it it is and you can either cry about it or laugh about it and i just and a lot of people told me to kind of keep quiet as well you know obviously like the record's done really well critically speaking and, and commercially speaking as well but I don't think people realise you can have a top 40 album and not see a penny from a record company from that. I mean, it, that's, that's, that's just, I mean, I, I, I've been saying it for years. And I think there's two things there. That number one, that people are telling you to be quiet about it because there's this kind of hidden law or this unwritten law that as musicians, we should never talk about the business or the money side of it because we should just put more music out there, which is ridiculous because it's like whatever job they're doing, if they were told not to talk about the money side of it and just work and not earn any money, they would be like, you know, let's go and protest and there'd be riots. But I think there's this unwritten law that musicians shouldn't talk about the money side or the finances when we're just blatantly being ripped off. We're doing all this work and not getting paid for it. Yeah, and I think all. it's a bit like how, about, how many how many industries have that? <laughs> I know it's sort of like maintaining kind of the myth and illusion and the glamour of it too, as if you might like pierce this idea of success. And it's like well, there are different kinds of success. You know, you can have a, a hugely successful record in terms of critical acclaim, but it's important that we acknowledge that that doesn't equate to money. And it's important that we realise, you know, that the majority of working musicians are earning under twelve thousand pounds a year. That is 
really normal yeah. um, and how we as a society don't value art mm. and exactly. also how well, we want it <laughs> and also how messed up a lot of the deal structures are that are still working on an old deal structure of you know 82 percent to a record company 18 percent to the artist which is based upon when people were selling a lot of physical products and that was the only way, you know. Yeah, well, it's, it's based upon the fact that record companies were shelling out so much money to get a band to be successful. Yeah. And and now they're getting hundreds and, you know, billions of, 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 of pounds and revenue from streaming services, which they are just blatantly just not passing on to the artists. Yeah. They're like, if we, and I'm like, how did we get to this point in 2022 where we have a whole new way of selling music and a whole new way of getting music out there. And the artist now earns zero, at least with the old deals, you know, we get 14%, 18%, you know, and now we literally get zero. So I'm really glad that you're shouting about it because if COVID showed anything, it showed how without touring, art, you know, artists literally have no way to make an income from music. Yeah, but I think there'll be a revolution of sorts. You already see it happening, you know, an artist like Little Sims that put her album out with, you know, artists without labels, although that has just been brought up by Sony. But, you know, the idea that you can have a massively successful album and get a Brit Award and not be signed to a label. It's yeah. like, we don't, and if we don't need them anymore, if that power dynamic changes, they're going to be forced to rethink the deal structures. They're going to yeah. be forced to more kind of evenly break up the pie to give it to the people that actually you know pay for their bmws and their chauffeur driven cars and their private yeah. schools for I, their kids and all I, of that. I, I want i want um because what the spotify do is they pay the huge artists they play the big artists because if they pay can pay the pay the big artists and if those guys get a lot of money then you know then they can't club together and um do something about it yeah i think it's so difficult i mean i've seen it happen with artists myself like who've been previously independent and then they've signed with like a subsidiary of a major and you see their streaming numbers go massively up even on stuff that they released um you know the algorithm is in works in favor of those that have got a share of the company Mm. um you know it's, it's really hard no matter how successful your record is or how hard you work you know we Mm. couldn't get a look in at spotify in terms of playlisting no and if you can't if the algorithm feeds itself so it's impossible to kind of make any headway there yeah i i think we need a music revolution we need an artist music revolution you know whereas we just kind of gang together and just do something else outside of it but it's it's just a wonderful delight to talk to you. I'm so happy we got to chat to you um, for the show because um, I, I fell in love with doing that record. I think it's called The Exchange that you did with... Um, uh, James Dean Bradfield. James Dean Bradfield, Manics, yeah. yeah. You know, that was when I, you kind of first fell into my lap and I love that song. Oh, thank that, you. Well, that, that was music. just, yeah, a dream come for me. You know, Manic's my childhood hero, so to get him on the record with me was just like... Wow. Yeah, it's a lovely collaboration. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we go about the because you've got um a track that we're going to play on the show, a track called "Let It Hurt." Am I got that right? Um, off the top of my head. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that song because you have new music coming out. I want to talk about the future and what you're about to do next. Uh, how did that the new song develop? How did it all come together? So it's been a year since the album originally came out, and the my old label decided they wanted to do an expanded edition of it because it's it's done so well. So they asked me to record five acoustic tracks so five versions of songs on the record but they're completely different to the album because the album is um, really complex in terms of arrangements lots of vintage synths and Depeche Mode kind of sounding bangers I think the technical word is (laughs) and then I've kind of stripped it all back and gone back to the acoustic piano um, 
while it's uh, just really like gentle, right back to the skeleton of the song. So yeah, there's these just very different um, intimate recordings that, mm. that are coming out. And um, then I've recorded a Say Let It Hurt again, and I've done a French language version of that too. So it's been a really lovely thing to revisit an album quite a while after having made it but with a different perspective and hopefully to kind of bring in some new listeners and people that might have missed it first time around. Basically. Exactly. What, what is the song about? So Let It Hurt is, is about the themes of the record, really, about, you know, what do we do with grief and loss? Do we confront it or do we avoid it? And what are the, what's the price that we pay when we try to avoid pain? So it's kind of a rallying call to myself, you know, ouch, this is going to hurt. Stop bargaining with yourself and let it hurt some, you know confront the pain confront the grief and that's you, you can't go around it you have to mm. go through it so that's mm. what it's about really wonderful and future plans so you're not touring this year right i'm not no i've just postponed my tour again until spring 2023 when i'm hoping it'll be safe for me to go out again um and we're doing all over the uk then fingers crossed to be able to get into europe but like you say with the new brexit kind of issues it's it's all a bit unknown well and i'm, I'm I feel like they might be ironed out by then. I mean, I'm being on tour right now. You know, venues have a lot of the venues that are playing out have you have to wear a mask, and half the audience is not wearing them. So, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to if you're vulnerable to not be out there. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I'm so instead I'm making a covers record at the moment with Marcel Van Den Beek, who worked with Tori Amos. Um, we're doing that remotely, which has been really fun, and I'm starting on album three tentatively. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, good luck with that. Um, thank, you. thank you for sharing your ideas and uh, showing uh, this lovely view of the room there. It looks very inspiring. I'd love to be in that. You should come over <laughs> I can see some really. I should. I can see some lovely kind of old gear in the corner there that I'd love to mess around with. So You are welcome yeah. anytime. Well, good luck with the rest of the tour. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really fun. It's really fun. I mean, I'm enjoying it a lot. Thank you so All much right. for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you. The Anchoress, as always, give the podcast a like, subscribe and leave Skintings a nice review wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget, you can always tweet me at SkinSkinny. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, it's me, Skin, from Skunkanazi, saying ciao.